Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. The following is a presentation of Prepared to Answer, a ministry devoted to seeing a new generation of Christians experience life transformation through a renewed mind by teaching them to think like Jesus. There are many words in English that have been so overused that they have almost lost all meaning. Love is one such word that, depending on context, can mean sex, lust, selfish desire, selfless giving, emotional ecstasy, or mushy sentimentality. And sometimes even context doesn't make it completely clear what we mean. Faith is another word that's become especially confusing for Christians or those trying to understand them. We use it often, knowing that we need to have it, but feel puzzled and confused if anyone asks us to nail down exactly what we mean by it. So what do we mean? What is faith? Perhaps the best place to begin is to clarify what faith isn't. A good place to start with is how our culture views faith, because all too often this is where our own ideas come from. In 1947, one of the best-known Christmas movies of all time, Miracle on 34th Street, was released. It tells the story of a department store Santa who claimed to be the real Santa. Fueling the hopes of a little girl and challenging the beliefs of her mother, the story climaxes with a Supreme Court trial in which Santa, or Chris in the story, defends his identity as the real Santa. While the prosecutor's case is built entirely on the basis of what we know, i.e. that Santa doesn't really exist and therefore the defendant can't be the real Santa, the defending lawyer and main character Fred Gailey builds his defense upon the basis of faith. In his memorable and emotional closing argument, he says, Faith is believing when common sense tells you not to. Don't you see? It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy and love and all of the other intangibles. In this sense, faith is what we believe despite what we know to be true. Or as Mark Twain coined it, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Unfortunately, many Christians maintain such a view of faith, seeing belief in Christ as a pure act of stubborn determination to affirm Jesus as true regardless of the evidence presented to the contrary. In this sense, faith becomes something that we conjure for ourselves. It's the power of our own convictions, divorced from reason. One other sense of faith has become popular in our culture, however. This is faith seen as something powerful in and of itself. Such ideas are popularized by contemporary spiritual icons like Oprah or Deepak Chopra. These ideas flow deeply from a New Age philosophy that views our very capacity for having faith as a latent source of power within us that we simply need to somehow tap into. A quote by George Woodbury on Oprah's website illustrates this idea very well. He says, If you can't have faith in what is held up to you for faith, you must find things to believe in for yourself. For a life without faith in something is too narrow a space to live. 
In this sense, our faith is in faith. What we believe is only of secondary importance. That we believe is all that really matters. So, a quick tour of culture gives us two main ways that faith tends to be understood today. Faith is belief in opposition to knowledge, and therefore is really just exercised irrationality. Or, faith is belief in the power we possess within to change ourselves and the world around us, and therefore is exercised idolatry. Neither of these understandings of faith will do for the Christian, or for any rationally thinking person for that matter. We must look elsewhere for a useful definition of faith. What is faith? One of the best-known Bible passages on faith is found in Hebrews 11. The first verse serves as an opening attestation to faith, saying, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. Taken in isolation, this verse may sound like the believing what you know ain't so version of faith discussed earlier, but it's not. The context won't allow that. You see, just prior in Hebrews 10.38, the writer has quoted Habakkuk 2, 3-4, in which the prophet sets before God's people of faith two options. First, Christians can either live by faith and please God, or, secondly, he says, they can shrink back and displease him. But what does he mean by live by faith, or not shrinking back? The writer expresses this in his own words in Hebrews 10.36. He says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Far from being mere mental assent to some set of ideas in the absence of evidence, faith is in fact our commitment to act on what God has promised to be true. The surety and certainty the author mentions in Hebrews 11.1 are mental states resulting in action. It's aligning our living activities with what God has revealed to be the case about reality, whether that reality concerns himself, ourselves, or the world we live in. Put simply, faith is living as if what God says is true. And this certainly accords with what the writer of Hebrews says in the rest of chapter 11. Here he presents a thorough biblical historical sketch of God's faithful ones and how they illustrate the truth of Hebrews 11.1. By faith... They accepted what God told them was true, and therefore acted accordingly. And far from being in opposition to reason, their actions were based on reason, because they acted according to the knowledge of the truth that God had given them. This goes against our popular ideas that so often pit faith and knowledge against each other. In reality, faith is grounded in knowledge. As Dallas Willard puts it, we can never understand the life of faith seen in Scripture and in serious Christian living unless we drop the idea of faith as a blind leap and understand that faith is commitment to action, often beyond our natural abilities, based upon knowledge of God and God's ways. If faith is acting in accordance with what we have come to know as true, then why do we struggle so often to live by faith? The fact is that we exercise faith almost continually every single day, usually without even knowing it. The reason why we treat faith in God as such an unusual thing has more to do with the unusual, or perhaps more accurately, unfamiliar nature of God as the object of our faith, rather than any unfamiliarity in exercising faith that we may feel. Maybe an illustration will help bring clarity to this distinction we're talking about. Consider a simple chair. Many times every day we engage in the simple act of sitting. It's so common that we do it without even thinking. And yet if we do stop to think about it, the simple act is itself a many times a day exercise of faith. And here's why. Faith, as we clarified above, is acting according to what I know to be true. 
In the case of a chair, anytime I sit down, I'm effectively performing an act of faith based on my knowledge about chairs. The hope of my faith is that I'll safely attain to the state of sitting, allowing my legs a needed break or bringing my mouth a little closer to my dinner plate. We can break down the whole process according to the terms of faith we defined above. Number one, the object of my faith, in this case, is the chair. Number two, the hope of my faith is attaining to the state of sitting. And number three is the knowledge on which I base my faith, which may be varied and possessed in greater or lesser degrees. In the case of a chair, it may involve just a basic knowledge of physics, i.e. the material strength of wood, structural integrity of design, etc. Or it may be knowledge confirmed from other sitters. In other words, we've observed or received confirmation from others who've successfully enjoyed the state of sitting. Or it may be our simple knowledge of the existence of chairs. We have first-hand personal knowledge of chairs and their properties. We may call this knowledge by direct acquaintance. So, we have all the elements needed for faith, but the question now becomes, what is our faith? In other words, while we have the object, the hope, and the knowledge that define and give substance to our faith, where do we find our faith? The answer is in our living response of action. Without this, there is no faith. That's why James said, faith without deeds is dead. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Bear with me just a little longer. So where is our faith in the chair? Here we need to break the simple daily act down a little further. There are essentially three stages in the act of sitting. The first stage is standing at the chair with the hope of sitting before us. Number two is the physical motion of placing our body into the chair. And number three is the final state of sitting itself. Here's where this picture will help us understand where and what faith is. If we simply stand before the chair and either mentally or verbally affirm our trust that sitting in it will fulfill our hopes, i.e. the state of sitting, this isn't faith. It may be an important part of faith that we may call our declaration of faith, which is of course necessary if we or anyone listening to us is to have any idea of what we're placing our faith in, but this isn't faith. At this point, we may only possess some knowledge about the chair, but we don't yet possess faith in the chair because we haven't yet begun to act upon our knowledge. Nor is faith found in the final state of sitting down. Once we're sitting, we have in fact obtained to the hope of our faith. We're now in possession, or to use the biblical language, we have received the inheritance of our faith, and so we no longer hope for it. As Paul says in Romans 8.24, who hopes for what he already has. By elimination, then, faith must necessarily be found in the second stage, that is, within the physical motions of placing our body into the chair. Faith exists at that point where our action flows out of our knowledge and in living expectation of our hope. We find our faith only where we are living according to what we've already given mental assent to. We know the chair will provide the hope of sitting, and so now, by faith, We've engaged our lives to enter into that reality. Our faith in the chair lives where we act upon what we have come to know to be true about the chair. Looking back to our passage in Hebrews, this seems to square well with what the writer affirms about those cataloged as models of faith. They all received revelation from God, which they took as true knowledge. Based on that knowledge and the hope of what was promised through it, by faith they acted on it. And the writer concludes the chapter stating, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. 
Their faith was found and commended in the living, breathing activities of their everyday lives that conformed to the vision of reality they had been given by God. They were not yet the full recipients of that reality, but their certainty of it, based on their confidence that what God says is true, allowed them to live as if they had already received it, even when negative circumstances arose that suggested otherwise. Conclusion Why a right understanding of faith matters In exploring the question, what is faith, we haven't been trying to answer, what is Christian faith, but the more general question of, what kind of thing is faith? That's because, before we can enter into meaningful conversations about kinds of faith, be they Christian, Muslim, humanist, or other, we first need to be clear about what we mean by the word itself. But even, and perhaps more importantly, to grow as people of faith, Christians need to be clear on what it is that they should be growing. It's precisely our failure to be clear about that that leads to so many well-meaning but misguided and sometimes harmful words and activities. Unfortunately, many Christians have allowed culture more than scripture to inform their concept of faith, and as a result, their attempts to live out their Christian faith results in errors of many kinds. In some cases, we adopt the faith-divorced-from-reason position, affirming the need to just believe. This has the appearance of spiritual wisdom, until someone asks the obvious follow-up question. How do I just do that? If faith is divorced from reason, it's hard to offer someone a reasonable answer. In other cases, Christians slip into the mystical Oprah Winfrey-type version of faith, where knowledge plays little to no role, and people are left almost entirely at the mercy of feelings and emotions. In such a view, faith is found only by looking deep within your own heart, which is exactly where you don't want to look, except to appreciate the depths from which Jesus has saved you. Faith properly conceived, however, leaves us in the enviable position of a daily, moment-by-moment capacity to locate, confirm, and even evaluate the health of our faith by asking the most concrete of questions. What actions have I taken today to demonstrate that I am living by faith? This is something we can do regardless of how we're feeling or what our circumstances are. It allows us to remove faith from the category that Fred Gailey earlier called the intangibles of life. Faith, rather, is something most tangible because it resides in my living, breathing, moment-by-moment response to God's truth. I'll conclude with James's remarks about Abraham, that great model of faith. James says, You see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The preceding has been a part of the recording ministry of Prepared to Answer. For more resources to help you become more confident in living out and defending your faith in Jesus Christ, visit us at www.preparedtoanswer.org or on Facebook and Instagram at Prepared to Answer. Thanks for joining us, and may the Lord bless and keep you.